0: Judith Ley here, welcoming you to the podcast edition of The Archive Room, Manx Radio's treasure chest of stories of island life from years gone by, told by the people who were there. So come on in and let me take you for another gentle stroll down Manx memory lane.
1: Manx Radio.
0: It is so good to be back with you again for a new series of The Archive Room. And thanks to Tim Price, who looks after the Manx Radio archives, I've got another wonderful collection of stories to share with you. As you might imagine, in the coming weeks, there'll be lots of Christmas stories and memories. And as we get closer to the big day, a few trade secrets might slip out too. But with the definite drop in present-day temperatures, I thought we'd start off with a few snow stories. When David Collister met up with Kirk Michael resident Tom Cashin, it was to talk about a harsh winter in the 1960s. But Tom first had this story about the snowy winter of 1895.
1: Well, it concerns the Reverend Charles Lee Wilson and his wife Neville. They had built uh, a large house, a nine bedroom house for their large family of 10 children in Michael in 1893. In fact, it was completed in June 1894. And they'd come to Michael on a short visit in February 1895, and they were trapped by the snow. And this was the great snow of 1895. Now, they were trapped in their house, and they were wanting, at least the Reverend Charles Lee Wilson, was wanting to get back to Nottingham, to his uh, vicarage, and to his church where he was engaged to give one or two important talks and um, the problem was that they were snowed up in Michael, they couldn't get out by road, they couldn't get out by rail and so Mr. John Danny Kelly came up with the ingenious idea of getting a boat and rowing the boat from Michael Beach to Peel Harbor and this is what actually happened. They got a boat. It was Mr. Kajague's boat on Michael Beach from down at the mill. And uh, the party gathered together on the beach. There was Charles Wilson, his wife Neville. There was the postmaster, John Sale, who had his bag of mail. There was Tommy Kacken, who was going to row, and Robert Boyd and Bissett Cooley. So they set off with their luggage and their bag of mail, and uh, they left Michael Beach at 1.30 p.m. and set off for Peel. Now, Mrs. Lee Wilson was sitting in the stern of the boat, which was, it was larger than the rowing, but it was more of a type of a yawl. And she describes, as she said this, in her letter, she says, the sea was calm and the sun shining, so that by keeping along the shore, we were warm and had the most splendid sight. And she's looking along the beach as she went. And then she goes on to say, the cliffs were covered with snow down to the high water mark and the icicles, I shall never forget, they were 10 feet long at least and many of them a sharp contrast to the summer scenes they remembered because they normally only came to Michael in the summer and they only remembered the beach in the summer, you say. Mm. When they eventually got to Peel Bay... She says, in Peel Bay, there were pieces of ice floating about, which we had to avoid, or they might have cut a hole in our boat. So you might have had a Titanic situation <laughs> yes. then, of uh, colliding in Peel Bay with uh, icebergs or something like that, you say. Yeah. But when they got to Peel, their problems weren't over. They left Michael at 1.30 and they were in Peel at 3 o'clock which mm. seemed a pretty good time to me one mm. and a half hours to row from roadboat, <laughs> yes and uh, anyway they got out at peel took their luggage out and they went to peel railway station and they found that the railway hadn't been cleared as far as peel only as far as st johns so then they had to walk along the railway line with their goods and chattels until they got to st johns and there they met the train then they went on to Douglas to a boarding house or to some friends to stay and that was on the Saturday Mm. and on the Sunday the Reverend Charles Wilson took a a service at St George's Church on the (laughs) Sunday evening and then they left Douglas on the boat the morning boat for Liverpool and they were able to catch the train back down to Nottingham so he was able to get back home again so it was really quite a story but The story doesn't end there because although they'd got through, the other members of the boat, that was uh, John Sale, the postmaster, Tommy Cacken and Robert Boyd and Bissett Cooley, they then had to bring the boat from Peel in the dark back Back to Michael. Michael. Mm. Now, there's nothing mentioned in the letter about it, but judging from what you can read in the paper... It couldn't have been a very pleasant journey because the east wind is a very fickle sort of a wind and sometimes there is none and the next minute it's blowing a gale. And they were rowing in the dark. Remember, there weren't many lights around, yeah. but somehow two of them at least were very experienced boatmen of Michael and uh, they got their way back safely again. So that was one
0: way in which uh, these people escaped from from the great snow in 1895. So, from a tale of amazing determination to some first-hand experiences. And Tom Cashin remembers the winter of 1962 to 63 as being the harshest one he'd experienced since moving to Michael in the 1950s. By this time, Tom was headmaster of Michael's school.
2: When did it start? When did the snow come down first?
0: Well, we had a heavy
1: fall of snow at the end of uh, December, and early January, because when the school opened, there were a number of children who lived in the little London area who uh, hadn't arrived, and it was very, very cold at that particular time. Again, we had a, a very heavy fall of snow on the 21st of January, and the roads were blocked. Eventually, they were able to find a way through so that we had our school dinners. But the frost was very, very severe in that month. For example, our outside toilets... ...were frozen, which uh, caused a good deal of inconvenience. Yes. The first job that the caretaker, Mr Harry Moore, used to have to do... ...was to take buckets of hot water and unfreeze them. That was a steady job all that term. For about two months we had nothing but east-northeast wind... ...right through, through January and through February. And then, of course, on the 5th of February began the great snowfall. The ground had been frozen very, very hard. We hadn't played any football for January or part of February because the ground was frozen. It was like iron, and it would have been very, very dangerous to actually to have played any sort of games on the ground. The blizzard in question started on the 6th of February. It began in the morning about 10 o'clock. The snow, it wasn't falling in flakes. It was blowing around just like sand. It was whirling round and drifting then already. Well, the first thing, the parents all come in for their children to take them home, especially the ones that lived in the Bagaro area and, and round about. Mr and Mrs Pickering at that time, who lived up the Erie, they come down for their children and um, they disappeared with them and we didn't see them again for another month they they were snowed up for a month Mm. and so it started to snow in the morning and the children went home and then after the dinner we closed the school and sent everybody home before going home I went around the side of the school to check if everything was okay and um, it was then as I turned the corner of the school the full fury of the blizzard really hit me that was something that I've never ever experienced before or since Mm. the wind was so strong it was enough to blow you off your feet and uh, if you lifted your head up the snow was blowing into your eyes like sand it was blowing up your nostrils the only thing you could do was to put your head down under into your coat and shield your eyes Mm. I've never ever experienced anything quite like that in fact I was standing wondering whether i was in the south pole or siberia started snowing that tuesday morning it continued all day tuesday um, and all tuesday night all day wednesday and it took off about wednesday night on the wednesday morning the sky cleared and the sun came out and we were living in brighton villa at that time which was next to quail's grocer's shop And um, we thought, well, if we really run out of food, we'll we'll dig a hole through the wall and get into the grocery shop (laughs) because (laughs) the windows were all covered in snow. You couldn't really see out. Mm. So I came out of the back of the house because that was clear it was facing east. I came round to the side, into the main road, and it was really the most amazing sight because the snow at the front of our house was up to the bedroom windows. I got out into the middle of the road and looked down the village towards Ramsey, and all the way down through the village, there were huge drifts of snow right across the road. I then decided that I'd go up to visit my parents-in-law, who lived here at the Cregans, and some of the houses, the lower cottages, the drifts of snow, were right up to the roof. It was really quite amazing, and there was no one to be seen. It was really quite eerie. The whole village seemed to have been buried in snow, There wasn't a soul to be seen. I think everybody was sort of so shocked they didn't even come out of their houses to see what was going on because the shops were shut, no one could get to work and everyone was just wondering what was going on. The really good thing about it all was the fact that the electricity stayed on and the phone stayed on Mm. quite miraculously, really. It wasn't later till I realised that that sort of snow didn't fetch the wires down, it was really the
0: heavy, wet snow that brings down the wires our next guest remembers the great snow of the late 1920s as not just a feature of a severe winter, but as something of a turning point in her life. Meet Mrs Irene Kerfie, who during her long life was seldom, if ever, known by that name. And I am you really all over the sides of the Isle of Man, I think now, <laughs> but it's lovely. I like it. When David Collister recorded his conversation with Mrs Irene Kerfie, she was 90. And David set the scene by recalling some of the things happening on the Isle of Man in the year that Irene was born, 1913.
2: And on the Isle of Man in that year, we welcomed a record number of holidaymakers. 616,000 came by steam packet to Douglas. That was 122,000 more than the previous record being set in 1911. 1913 was the year when the Villa Marina Coorsal and Gardens opened. They were opened by the Governor Lord Raglan on the 19th of July. Two days later, the Palace and Derby Castle Company opened its Coliseum Theatre, which could seat three and a half thousand people. Every seat was filled for the appearance of one of Britain's most famous music hall artists, Vesta Tilly. 1913 also saw the destruction of the Laxey Glen Pavilion by fire, the death of John Miller Nicholson and the decision to set up a postcard censoring committee. What would people say if they came back now?
0: Irene Curfee has such a full and varied life that it would be impossible to share all her stories in one programme. So we're going to start at the very beginning. But I promise you, Auntie Rene will be back again in future programmes.
3: Art was my favourite subject in school. I went to the Douglas High School. Mm. Arbury School first, of yeah. course. Then I went to Douglas. And I could do no wrong with Mr Knox. No wrong. Archie Knox? Yes. Yes. Could do no wrong. I was 10 out of 10, 9 out of 10. It was me me best subject. What was Archibald Knox like
2: as a teacher generally, would you say?
3: Well, he was a good teacher, but he was a bit, well, I shouldn't say. Eccentric? Eccentric. He was. Well, he was allowed to be, I suppose. When he'd come into assembly in the mornings, oh, the boys used to clap and all this, you know. But I didn't go in for any big exams. You wouldn't remember the big snow we had.
2: I wouldn't, but you can tell me about it.
3: Well, we were warned in the school that we'd better all get home. Well, we didn't get home.
2: Uh
3: We were stuck in the train and spent the night in Ballasalla, in lodgings we had to be. And then we started off the next morning, and we were stuck in Castletown. We were in that uh, the Viking, as it is now, and we didn't get home till three o'clock in the afternoon. They were digging out the engines and the carriages and everything. Yes. That time it was dreadful.
2: So that would keep so you off school for a I week or so. I never went back. Or never went back. No, because oh. I was
3: sixteen. Come, you <laughs> see. That finished me. I'd had enough. I I wasn't one of these academics. I wasn't really. I always wanted really to be a nurse. Then it used to worry me that somebody would come in belonging to me, into nobles that I knew. But I had all the papers all to go to Walton Hospital in Liverpool. Uh, Everything was all signed up to go and then my father came home from sea and he hadn't been home for a long time and he sort of Talked me out ago, and he he was saying, I'll, I'll never see you, and all this, you know. Uh-huh. So that finished that. Yeah. It was then I, I went for a confectioner, you see. So yeah. I went to Miss Paul's first to set me time. I was three years with Miss Paul. She had a shop in Castletown, Castle Cafe, it was called, it was yeah. right by the castle. And then I went up to Mr. Kermode's up Arbury Street. I was three years there improving, supposed to be. And then I was three years with Miss Duggan. But then the job came up for the school, and I took that job, and I was there for 30 years. Castle Castle Russian, Russian. Castle Russian. And the most happy days of my life were lovely. It was just advertised, and then I applied for the job and got it. (laughs) I went in the room and I always remember getting pushed in by Mr. Wilkinson.
2: Uh, The director of education.
3: It was my turn to go in and when I seen all these people sitting around the table to be interviewed, you know, there was about seven or eight people sitting around the table and one woman. I said, oh, I'm not going in there. He pushed me in. (laughs) And then, of course, Mr. Coburn, headmaster in Russian school, he said, oh, she was been working in Miss Duggan's and all this, you see. So Mm. that carried the day for me. It was lovely. And then when I got to the school, it was Mr. Cretney. He was at school the same time as me and Douglas. Right.
2: So with Mr. Critton, he was head at he was Castle head. Russian High School. Yes. What were you dishing up to them at mealtime?
3: Well, at first you see the cost was only fivepence. That was fivepence for a dinner. They had vegetables, they had potatoes. There was about 120 started the school the first time, you see. So some like stew, some like hot pot. They all like different things, but their mm. favourites seem to be, I get it called to me even now, cheese and onion pie. Oh, yeah. They loved that.
2: Cheese and onion pie, pastry, of course. Pastry, and, pie, course. Uh, pastry
3: <coughs> yeah. and then um, potatoes had to be mashed with butter and, and pepper. Do you want to know how to make it? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, you line the tin with pastry. Big, long tins, they Mm. were. And then you chop the onion fine, put it in the bottom, and just put a bit of milk over the top to soften it. And then you grate the cheese and put that on top of the onion, and then you cream the potatoes, and you spread that over the top, and sprinkle some more cheese on the top of that. Mm. That's all it is. Mm. The cheese makes it, you know, nice and coloured on. And then we used to buy uh, cow heels, and we would great big pans at that time. And we used to stew them to get the good out, to go in the gravy. We went to all these different things to get the goodness out of things, you see. What did Um, you do for puddings? Well, of course, there was always rice. And if there wasn't rice pudding, there'd be steamed puddings, chocolate pudding, Ginger pudding and mm-hmm. custard. But we used to get the milk from walkers, of course, and we'd, we'd be going 10 gallons of milk. From the time I started to the time I finished, there was a big Big change, big, change oh, yeah. you see, and mm-hmm. everything. There was. We changed schools. We started off in the huts, you know, in where they yeah. used to say the sailors used to be right. in Castletown. We started off there. After Mr Cretney went, he went away. He'd done so well here in opening that school. He got this job in um, Wolverhampton. That was uh, Mr Cretney. He'd done very well in Castletown. He was a nice headmaster. And then uh, Miss Wells became his headmistress for a while until... Mr. Smith came. He was a good man, too. Mm. He was a real friend of mine. And then I left just before Mr. Tavener started. Oh, yes. I left.
2: You do remember going into new school, though, do you? Oh, yes. That Get must have been a big change. <laughs> it
3: was. <laughs> I don't know what they thought we were going to work on. The men. Trust men. They took all the... the table and everything was what they thought we were going to work on i don't know there was all things going round the wall you know small tables Mm. but there was a big table we used to use in the middle of the floor and they'd taken that out and we went out to get it and we were carrying it in and and the clerk of the works was shouting leave that alone you're not bringing it in but we'd brought it they would no idea what we really wanted (laughs) and then they never realized that them, there would be a big intake of children, and oh. the school would grow. The school should have been bigger in the first place than yeah. you know than what they did.
0: The distinguished careers of Noel Kringle, Eddie Lowey, and Sir Miles Walker probably owe a great deal to the nourishing food served to them at Castle Russian High School. Auntie Reenie well remembers them all as pupils there while she was head cook. We'll have more stories of Auntie Rini and post office life when we open the archive room door again next week. But for now, let's have one more Auntie Rini story. When young Irene, aged around 12 or 13, was happy to do chores, save up and then enjoy a good night out with her friends.
3: We could have a night out for eightpence. It was threepence on the train, return. Saturday night, we used to go to the pictures to the Castletown. Thrupence on the train, threepence down in the front of the picture house, and yeah. twopence for Chips, and that was eightpence. <laughs> yeah. And we used to come home on the nine o'clock train from Douglas, yeah. half past nine in Castletown it was. In the cosy cinema it was. In, in Castletown. Castletown. What
2: but, size uh, cinema would that be then? would well, you seat a few hundred in it?
3: oh it wouldn't seat that many no. I don't think It'd be quite no. small it was only small you used to break down it would break down in the middle of a real exciting part <laughs> it would break down and then you got your money back and well we'd a night out for eightpence well I had to work for that oh did you I had to go for sticks. And dust the front room. That was two of my jobs on a <laughs> Saturday morning. Oh, I used to get the pension for um, another old aunt in the, in Curtis Kelly.
0: And she used to give me three hapence of all oh. things. Three halfpence. <laughs> 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 Our archive room is full of fascinating conversations on every subject you could think of. But now and again, a little musical gem appears. Keep listening as David Collister will explain in a moment why this is so very special.
2: Vanon played by Lawrence Corran. Lawrence was in his 90s. When that was recorded, it was taken from a previous series of Time to Remember. Lawrence had been in a, a dance band in his younger days in Ramsey. And uh, after the interview, I got him to play one or two pieces on the piano. He's someone who played the piano at that time, certainly every day. And I said to him, do you think you could play Alan Vannon? And he said, well, I've never been asked to play that before, he said. But he knew the tune, he sat down, and that was the result. First time playing Ellen Vannon by ear. Good old Lawrence Corran.
0: I'm afraid this is where we have to close the Archive Room door, just for this episode. But I have much more to share with you, so I do hope you can join me again just after six next Thursday evening. Or subscribe and listen at your leisure to all the podcasts. Go to manxradio.com and search for The Vault. You'll find this and all previous episodes of the Archive Room, as well as lots more from the Manx Radio Store of Nostalgia. Thank you to the late David Collister, who originally recorded these wonderful stories. And thank you for listening. And it seems only right that I should finish with a classic sign-off from Howard Hampton.
1: Anyway, till next week. So long, sir.